Welcome to the Everyday Sniper. You got Frank from Sniper's Hide here, and we're back with our burger, no BSBC. And uh, we got Brian and Emil on the phone again. Uh, we, we All of us were kind of back to work a little bit, so we had a bit of a break, which was great because it allowed you guys to get some questions in, and it, it works for us to talk about some other topics. But uh, welcome to the podcast this morning, Brian and Emil. Uh, glad you guys are on. Yeah, good to be here again. Every, every uh, guys are getting back into the swing of it. I know Brian, you went up to the uh, Night Force event. I think I read, and um, you know everybody's starting to get back to work and back to uh, competing and shooting. I, we just had the Snipers Hide Cup last weekend, so that worked out real well for us. And and then I know uh, the guys were doing the Night Force ELR recently with a lot of tricky conditions. It looked like wow, what was going on out there? Yeah, it was Wyoming, right? So the, whenever you look around and see windmills as far as the eye can see, you know, somebody with folding money invested in the wind blowing there, and, and it does. It blows blows like crazy. Um, but that's part of the challenge, part of the fun. Um, probably the highest it got up to, I think, was around 60 miles an hour. It got a little sporty. I mean, just shooting aside, when it, you know, tripods blowing over, spotting scopes, you know, people's hats and other like non-tethered down items just vanishing. <laughs> <laughs> so it's it takes a lot of management and paying attention to, you know, to even just, you know, leave with everything you came with in conditions like that. But this shooting, you know, it was it was really fun to shoot in that condition too. So yeah, the match was, um, you know, I think the average range was about a thousand eighty yards, but there were targets everywhere from like six, seven hundred yards out to just past two thousand. I think two thousand ninety one was the farthest. Um, but incredible diversity of targets in every stage. There were two mover stages. You know, there were coyote targets and turkeys and sasquatches and, uh, and the giant I mean, unicorn. Kind of, <laughs> oh yeah, the giant unicorn. Um, so you know, it's not very many regular shaped targets, you know, it, it emulated a, a lot of things about hunting and even finding the targets. A lot of the time, you know, they don't paint the targets because by the end of the day, they're all bare steel anyway. And so that gray steel kind of blends in with the terrain. And like, I, I was real nervous about that going in, you know, just being able to find the target. So, and going into every stage, as soon as I could, I was, I'm glassing, you know, I'm looking to make sure that I can find all the targets transition them in order and like going through it again and again in my head just to make sure that I wouldn't lose time searching for targets. Um, you know, I ended up running the whole match on probably 11 or 12 power on the scope just for that reason, because it's way easier to find targets at low power. Um, so that was one thing. This, this is not a typical match for me, Frank. I have not shot many uh, field matches and, you know, whenever you're doing something that's kind of new, you go in with a plan, but then it doesn't survive first contact. A lot of you end up doing a lot of things different than you thought you would, and but that's the fun of it for me. I, I enjoy learning and and those challenges, and definitely the next time I shoot a match like that, it'll look different than this time. Like as far as my preparation and going in and expectations, um, you know, I was 80th place out of like 200 shooters, uh, but it was it was a lot of fun. You know, I really enjoyed it and look forward to going back next year. Nice, nice. And we, we kind of go into that same format with the Sniper's Hide being the field match. Um, we've mixed it up to team and individual, but you have to find the targets. I mean, we'll point them out the general direction in the, in the initial brief is like, hey, you have four targets on this stage. One's there, one's there, one's there and there. And you understand the stage, go. And then you got to range them and engage them on the clock. And so there is there is a trick to sort of finding those uh, reference and key points and locating the target and then ranging and engaging it. Um, I don't know if they gave you the ranges there. I believe they do. Um, it's part of the PRS uh, type uh, situation where they usually give you ranges to the target, but we make them range on the clock just because we see so many people invest in um, laser range finders. We want them to be able to use them where most, most matches they don't get to use their electronics like that. Um, so we allow it and it's, it's a good process, I think. Yeah. Yeah. This match, they gave us all the ranges, um, you know, and it, and I see what you're saying too. 
if the, if the shooters have to range in themselves and that just brings another skill set into it, you know, using, um, a range finder is, is kind of a skill, you know, you get better at it with experience and it is part of, you know, natural, uh, field shooting. You know, you're normally not given the range to, to targets that just targets of opportunity. So, um, I could, I could see, you know, the match being fun with or without that. It's just another element. Um, one of the things that really, you know, that struck me about it was the, the level of mental fatigue by the end of the day, the first day we shot, uh, 12 hours, like we started seven thirty, eight o'clock. And it was about that time in the PM when we finally finished. Um, and so, you know, in every stage, like, you know, being a ballistician, I, I work, you know, obviously with ballistics, but most of the ballistic calculations that I do are vetting software and improving software and processing radar data. But rarely do I get to use and apply ballistics as, you know, as, as it's meant to be, as most shooters use our uh, applied ballistics products. And in that sense, I felt always kind of like a member of the pit crew, you know, just supporting the drivers out there. And in this match, I felt very much like a driver. I calculated more and applied more fire solutions in that day than I think I ever have before in a single day. That's for sure. You know, F-class shooting and sling shooting, you always, you know, it's, it's one of a handful of even numbers of ranges and you get sighters. So it's really the types of shooting that I've done that I've spent a lot of time in have not really stressed the um the ballistic solution aspect of the competition, but this really did like you needed to have a plan and needed to be efficient and quick to apply. Otherwise, by the end of the day, you're just, you're running ragged, you know, trying to do some kind of longhand process. My process is way shorter at the end than it was at the beginning. <laughs> nice, nice. And and that, you know what? That is awesome advice for people going out there. And, and we talk about that as well, having a plan going into it and, and sort of, yeah, you can't stick with the plan all the time, but at least understand where the plan falls down and stick with it the first couple stages and then adapt from there. Um, it, did you find you were using the, um, like the Garmin with it or were you using more of the Kestrel proper uh, with your software? Did, did you see one that work a little easier than the other? Because uh, we do see both well, where the Garmin and the, the Kestrel kind of get talked in the same um, sentences when it comes to the field matches. Right. Yeah. So that, that was part of what I was dealing with actually is there's, um, there's a, there's a new product that I'm not really is, uh, announced yet or that I'm supposed to talk about yet, but I was kind of vetting a new device and that was part of the, part of the issue. Cause you know, when things are in beta and they're prototypes, they're never as polished as they end up being. So, you know, I was juggling that with, you know, verifying solutions with the Kestrel and, you know, so having devices in both hands, that's, that's how I started. Um, but as, as I got confidence in that process, you know, I kind of dropped and focused on one and things got a lot faster then. So yeah, the, the Garmin and the Kestrel, you know, and the other devices that we have our software in there, they're, they all are going to give you the same answers with the same inputs. You know, it's just a calculator. That's what it should do. But the user's familiarity with those devices means so much. You know, if you just if you just know basically how it works and you can fumble your way through it, well, that's a starting point. But if you're going to go to a match where you're under time, you're under a clock to do everything in the entire chain of events uh, leading up to executing a successful shot, then you it can, you can't be fumbling with any of that. You it all has to be rehearsed. You have, it has to be second nature you know, what buttons to push without even thinking about it as you navigate through. And that's kind of what I was working with as, you know, I was working out these bugs with the, the prototype. I say bugs, my bugs in using it because it was still sort of new. Right, right. Um, I mean, just to get Emil in here real quick, because I've, I've observed you guys for several of the King of Two Mile matches uh, down at Raton. And in, in, in that context, you get to work more as a team. And I've always been impressed with watching Emil kind of build range cards regardless of the fact if you need one or not. He's there building a card by hand. He's doing a field sketch. He's mapping out the targets. Then he's looking at the wind for you guys. And, and, and the way he, he approaches it 
from a from a team standpoint in in a in an event like King of Two Miles where where it works that way, um, and you know just kind of like a, you talk mental fatigue and the process is there. Uh, maybe Emil could jump in and just talk about that team dynamic versus the individual um, uh, side of doing things where the Night Force event is a bit more of a individual type situation where, where you're on your own and you can't have somebody right there with you on the clock. You can work behind the scenes, but not in, you know, not on the, on the clock sort of, uh, I guess the best way to put it. Yeah, Frank. So for me, you know, uh, my process, uh, you know, like I can think fast. I've always been a guy that my brain works pretty fast, but my brain doesn't, do a really good job thinking quickly about multiple things at the same time. So I have to kind of uh, prepare my process so that I can, I can remain kind of focused and sort of channelized and I kind of do things in a set order. You know, I, I started out life as a machine gunner in the second Ranger battalion. Okay. Way back in when Reagan was president. So for me, uh, you know, I, I do a, like a little quick set and sniper school and stuff. So I kind of do like a little sector sketch first so I can remain oriented on the targets. Like you mentioned earlier, you know, uh, pick out your big reference points, you know, big to small. So, you know, I can find a large reference points quick, uh, whether it's a feature on the horizon, or whatever, and then bring it down to the target. And then, like you said, I usually draw a quick range card. And so each of the each of the engagements, I'll make sure that even if I have it on a device, I write it down, uh, you know, what my what my elevation is, what the size of the target is, how wide the target is in wind, you know, so computing, you know, how many miles per hour wide the target is at distance um, and also for spotting. So I kind of get it into my head if I know the target is like, you know, point six mils wide and i see it hit you know about two targets right i can immediately either make a correction on my own or give a correction to the shooter so that pre-planning part to me is really really important because it kind of sets into my head uh what the different targets are in terms of width the order i'm going to sh- we're going to shoot them in and uh and then what the what the wind situation looks at each one you know some guys do really well just kind of going right to the device but i found that you know, since you can't have a laptop on the line and even a phone is unmanageable in a lot of places, most of these devices, you know, you got multi button, you've got to press the same button or two buttons multiple times to get to like something new. And that's slow. And if you do the wrong sequence of buttons, you got to start over again or whatever it is. So, um, you know, until they have, you know, until the next generation of the devices that have like maybe better heads up displays and things like that, that are also rugged and not too big. Um, I think doing it manually now in the 60 mile an hour wind, it may not be uh, such a great idea to write your shit on a piece of paper. <laughs> right. Um, <laughs> but um, but I, I think uh, in, in those terms, it's always a good idea. And, you know, talking to talking to you know prs guys and some guys are smart enough they can do all that stuff in their heads i'm not so i'll i'll usually do it out on a piece of paper even if i don't bring the paper up to the line i'll kind of war game it out first kind of dress rehearsal kind of get that you know old school uh you know m60 machine gunner range card built in my head well, and and that's awesome advice because and we always talk about people that list the war gaming reference in sitting there behind the line when you're waiting your turn to go over your processes to make sure you're following up and and I I'm the same way uh, I feel I should like writing it down kind of um, embeds it in my brain where if I just kind of go look at the phone or look at the um the the the, the pad there or whatever the case may be I could be looking at the Kestrel. Um, it, it, if I look at that number and I memorize it for that short period of time, I find it's gone very quickly. And, and if I write it down, I'll stay with that number a lot longer, which helps me, especially if, if, as Brian said, the stage goes a little, you know, first contact, you meet 60 mile an hour winds and now everything you were thinking on the drive in, you know, is gone and you got to start all over with, with a new process because, wow, I wasn't expecting this to happen, whatever this might be for that particular day. 
And so um, I do think that's awesome advice to, to kind of create a note. And I always recommend to people is to use the match booklet that they give you. If they do give you a match booklet is to keep your notes on each stage. So that way there they, they, they can go back and, 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 you know, kind of learn what they did wrong or they can analyze, you know, what happened on that particular stage. Because they, I think they do blur once once you start it. Like, I mean, you guys both made great points. 12-hour days with all the wind and everything going on. And then, you know, we're getting older. And then you have so much to memorize. And you're there pushing buttons. And sometimes the, 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 the sequence of the buttons becomes, you know, just as important as the information it gave you. And, you know, one thing that Brian, uh, you know, and what you just brought up about the long days and, you know, you know, my former life, you know, as a coach at the Army Marksmanship Unit, you know, mental resilience and mental toughness is really important in any competition and especially shooting and especially an event like that. And so a lot of it, a lot of even if that all that preparation isn't necessarily uh, necessary, rather, um, it isn't it, it, that the function of it isn't required to execute the task. The process of doing that builds confidence and it helps you build that sort of thought process. You're building that little algorithm in your head of how you're going to do the thing. And if you get up there and it's completely different than what you thought, you know, staying resilient and staying tough in that moment and never thinking, hey, why is this happening to me? You know, what, what's happening to me here? Why, what, why is this happening? Why are the, why are the gods conspiring to freaking throw a lightning bolt at me during my part of the stage, staying in control of the moment and thinking rationally and just staying like, okay, well it hit there. So I have to aim way out here. Even if none of that stuff makes sense, I still have to put the bullet on the target. So being positive and leaning forward and maintaining mental momentum in that moment is really important. Nice. And just before we change topics really quick, um, Brian, I wanted to bring up that. I, I don't know if you noticed this during that event, but we're noticing it through the Sniper's Hide Cup because you do have to find it, range it, and engage it. That um, with your with your products and, and, and sort of how you built things, getting the lasers to give guys the range versus or, or the, the dope versus the range, we're finding guys are speaking in dope now to say first target, you know, 1.0, second target, 1.7, third target, 3.2. So they're giving guys their, their, their real world dope in that time to cut a step out. So I don't know if you got a chance to use that, but we see guys are using that. And that's an AB thing that is translating to our matches to success. Yeah, that's we're we're always trying to find the best ways to integrate ballistic science into the tools that are available. Um, you know, and there's the number of possibilities are endless. It seems with the new tech that keeps coming out, um, and we're just trying to make like not every not everything that's possible just because you can do it doesn't mean you should do it. And a lot of stuff is application specific. You know, if you're there, there are cases where you would talk about targets in terms of what their dope is and just cut out that middle step. Um, but, but is that a good idea? And I, and I reference back to the, um, the wind conversation that we have a lot where, you know, pro shooters don't talk about the wind in terms of the mills deflection. They talk about their, the baseline miles per hour. And that I think that's analogous to the range thing. So the range finder can give you just the dope to the targets at all those distances, and it cuts out that mental step. And as an individual, that can be very useful to you. But if you're communicating information about a target to a teammate that might be shooting a different cartridge, then it doesn't mean anything to him to know what your dope was. He would need to know the range. So it's important to remember that these tools are there to enable shooters to, to hit targets. That's the end goal. Um, but there's a lot of, um, you know, you really have to think about your application and the best way to use those tools um, as an individual or as a team, basically just consider your circumstances and use your imagination as to what the best possible use of your tools is. Because not everything that's possible is something that you should do. Right, right. And um, I got a really deep kind of question to go into this because you, you guys have jumped into the ELR side of things. And, and me on a personal level, aside from looking at the, the shooter, 
Um, you know, guys build really great ELR rifles. Okay, they're they're investing a lot of money. I see sort of the bullet in the cartridge as being the bigger determining factor, whether it's the the standard deviation on the load or what what the case may be, the BCs and how it transitions. So maybe we can kind of go down that sort of ELR and bullet rabbit hole with what you look at when you're you're putting a bullet out there that's going to be going, you know, 3000 plus yards. The, the, what you're looking at for its transitions and, and where you're trying to, you know, just put everything together. Because, in, like I said, in my brain, when guys are shooting a 7 to $9 cartridge, you know, on some cases, if they put all that time and effort and, you know, expense into it, um, you know, your thought process between offering that to people. Right. So... Yeah, boy, that could be a, yeah, a very it's, long discussion. It's, it's in the weeds, I get it. But, I mean, it's kind of where people want to go because you're the guy making these bullets. And, I mean, like your enabler and the different things you're doing. And I know it's deep, but maybe kind of give some broad strokes of the big picture that, that you look at at ELR ranges that you might not look at so much at the mid and shorter. Yeah. So um, one of the one of the elements that I think is – absolutely necessary to enjoy shooting, let alone be successful in competition, is that your ammunition in your your entire gun system is reliable. And what I mean by reliable is that you you know what how to anticipate what it's going to do. You you can expect when you show up to to shoot a match, you should know what your muzzle velocity is going to be within plus or minus five feet per second. Um, that's not always easy to do. You should know how consistent the BC is on your bullet. Um, you should, you should know how many rounds the barrel is good for and where you are in the barrel's life. You should know how your rifle behaves in response to cleaning and knowing all those things builds up a level of reliability to where you're not going to be surprised. You know, I think when we're talking about equipment like this, it's, it's not that the highest performance equipment wins matches. You know, you have to have some requisite level of performance to be competitive. But once you've reached that level, what's going to win the match is the shooter and his marksmanship skills and his ability to, you know, just beat the other competitors at what the contest is. Um, and, and no one can do that without reliable equipment. And so to get into what, you know, how do you achieve reliability with these big cartridges? It's a bigger challenge because, you know, if you have an issue with your 308 or your 65 Creedmoor, it's no big deal to just take a hundred rounds to the range and burn it down, you know, until you figure out what's going on. But if you've got an issue with your 416, it's, you, you're not going to the range with a hundred rounds to try to sort it out. You know, that's just so big and expensive and energetic, um, you know, there's far fewer live fire rounds being used in testing to figure stuff out. So what we see in these matches is a lot of um, guns behaving differently than the shooters expect them to. In other words, there's a lack of reliability. Um, and it's because, I mean, how many people have run numerous 416 barrels through an entire life cycle to know what to expect? Uh, not, you know, not many people. And like what I'm using that as an example, but no, it goes for all the Shytech class uh, stuff. You know, it's it's just big, it's big and expensive. It's not as easy or comfortable to shoot as the smaller stuff, so it's more difficult to build that level of comfort and reliability with it. Um, and there's component selection too. You know, again, going back to 308s and 65s, you know, the the market and the aftermarket and the reloading market for that stuff is huge, and so everybody knows somebody or knows where you can go to buy what you need and, you know, get a thousand reviews on everything in that class, but move up to the ELR size. And, you know, there's a much shorter list of options, far fewer people are using it. So there's not as much good information about the performance or reliability of these things. And so not only now are you constrained in your round count that you can practically, you know, use to develop your confidence, but, you're dealing with components that are not very well understood either. You know, what powders go good for the heavy class bullets in a, you know, 375 Shytech or it's, it's, it's not, you're not going to get as many Google search results on that as you will 
you know, powders and bullets and 6.5 Creedmoor. It's getting better. You know, ELR is getting more mainstream and there's definitely a ton more information now than there was five years ago, but it still is not nearly the breadth of information that's available for the more mainstream stuff. Yep. No, totally, totally. And, and so I, like, I know guys were going to the 416 in, in versus the 375. Are, are you seeing a big advantage in, in sort of jumping up that little bit? And, and it's kind of funny where it's like they don't want to go quite 50 cal, and I don't know if that's due to restrictions or anything. Nobody's kind of ever said it out loud why, why they've sort of bypassed the 50 on the degree they have. But it seems like that 416, 375s are the sweet spot for the ELR crowd right now. Um, is, is there any insight into, into kind of why you guys fall there? Yeah, so it, it has to do with a relative uh, cartridge case to, to caliber size. So 50 cal is, it's it's such a large cartridge. Like, it's considered to be a scaled-up 30-06, okay? It's very close to that in proportions. Now, a 30-06 with, say, a 28-inch barrel, well, a 28-inch barrel is, is reasonable for a 30-06. But if you were to scale up the barrel length for a 50 cal, you're looking at what are you looking at about 45 inches or 44 inches or something like that so and most 50 cows don't have barrels that long they have 30 34 inch barrels so for 50 cal you just don't have and that would by the way that would be like a 16 inch uh 30-06 so it's it's that's one reason why you can't really scale the whole gun up with the cartridge and so what you end up doing is using faster burning powders with lighter bullets. And so the 50 cal for a number of reasons is just, it just doesn't have the performance that people assume that it does. You know, an 800 grain 50 cal bullet, oh, these numbers, it's been a while since I did the math, but it's an 800 grain or 750 grain um, 50 cal bullet is proportional to like a 175 or 185 grain 30 cal bullet. So it's not really even on the heavy end for 50 cal. Now, if you neck it down, well, it's not 416 Barrett isn't exactly a neck down 50, but it's certainly more overboard. Now you can run heavier bullets at higher velocities and shorter barrels. All that stuff is better performance. And you have the same story with the 408 and 375 Shytac cartridges, you know, same size cartridge, but the little, you know, the one that's neck down is the one where you get the higher performance. And that's, that's a trend we're familiar with. That's why wildcatters neck things down, you know, 338 Norma versus 300 Norma. The little brother always takes the stage when it comes to performance. Um, you know, and there's the trade-off is barrel life. And, you know, but when you're competing at the high levels, that's just, it's a price that you always pay for performance, right? Race cars, the, the winning race cars wear out. <laughs> yeah, correct. You know, whether it's a quarter mile or whatever. Um, but another reason, another trade-off in these cartridges is like 416 versus 375. They're probably the two most uh, common calibers in ELR shooting. And the, the trade-off, as I see it, is not so much of a ballistic performance trade-off. <clears throat> um, they're, you know, depending on what bullets and what speeds, they're in the same class of performance in terms of velocities, BCs, wind drift. But where the 416 has the advantage is spotting impacts at distance, which is easy to overlook if you're just looking at performance on paper. But in a match, whenever you fire at a target and you have three shots to hit it and you don't see your first shot hit anywhere and you don't see your second shot hit anywhere, suddenly spotting impacts is of paramount importance. There's nothing more important than being able to see where you hit so you can correct your group onto the target. Um, and so I would say that's the advantage of the 416 and the price that you pay for that is having a much larger, more expensive gun, more expensive components, you know, more energetic, um, muzzle blast, like all the stuff is going to add up to you shooting and practicing less with that cartridge, as opposed to a smaller 375 that you can shoot quite a bit more of, but has a smaller bullet that leaves usually less of a signature on impact just because of the, you know, the kinetic energy on impact. Right, right. And that was part of the problem why you saw the transition at King of Two Mile was trying to find spot impacts in, in those crevasses on that cliffside. 
Um, it was absorbing. Oh, yeah. It was absorbing some of you guys' hits. Uh, I, I feel bad. I still laugh about the um the like the five inch group Mark Lonsdale shot on the frame, and nobody saw that he was hitting the frame, and it was absorbing everything. And 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 meanwhile, he had this like really great group, but just on the frame of the target and not on the target itself. And and we were in the back watching the uh the cameras. And, and unfortunately, you can't walk up to him and say, you know, come a foot to the left and you're there. And and, and right. it, it's just, you know, but that was where I, I, I remember seeing the bigger transition f- to the 416 was to overcome the sort of the limitations at Raton with that cliff side. Yeah, absolutely. Spotting the impacts is, I mean, it can't be overstated how important that is. I mean, Imagine, imagine you got two guns that are equal in ballistic performance. One of them shoots a half-minute group, but you can't see the impacts. The other one shoots a minute group, and but it's a bigger, it's a bigger bullet, and you can see the impacts. Well, you're going to do better in a competition with a one-minute rifle that you can see the impacts than you will with a half-a-minute rifle that you can't see the impacts. So, that's a very important consideration when you're, you know, designing a, a build for long range. Nice. Long range. Nice. Now, um, with your processes there, uh, are you finding like, because like you said, you have to dope these rifles with a lot less rounds, um, to, to kind of, uh, to, to adjust that system for that particular rifle. Is there a range you like to work in? Are you doing stuff like similar that you would with the, with the smaller caliber or are you working more in the like 1500 meter 2000 meter instead of say six and 800 to a thousand yards are, are, are you, are you working, I guess, where, where, where would you, you know, guide someone to sort of, um, you know, record their data for their rifle to determine that, you know, what is their muzzle velocity? What is their BC and and what's going on with it? Yeah. So as far as that stuff goes, there's really nothing different about that than how you would set up a normal long range rifle. Um, you still, you know, you still have to shoot groups at hundred yards. You still have to verify your zero at hundred yards. You still have to do a tall target. Okay. So here's one difference, a tall target, um, shooting normal long range. You need a tall target. That's like 30 minutes of angle or 10 mils or, you know, something typical that'll get you to a thousand or 1500 meters, but shooting these longer distances, you have to not only verify the entire range of internal travel of your scope you know, which is three times that 30 mils or a hundred minutes of angle. But you've also got, if you're using a Charlie TACCOM or any other kind of external attachable thing that augments your elevation, you have to be able to verify that those things are, um, you know, that all the stuff the tall target verifies. And that's a challenge because now you need a tall target. That's like 20 feet tall at a hundred yards. Um, so it's, it's not easy to come by, you know, so you usually don't have a backstop up there to catch your bullets. Um, so that's, that's something that we went to some lengths to build at the lab here is, so the way we have a 300 yard range and there's kind of a a bowl in the middle. So we have a tall target that we shoot through the top of it and the 300 yard berm catches the bullets. You know what I mean? So we aim at the bottom of it. And, and we can manage it that way, but it takes some unique terrain to be able to have that. Um, but it's, it's so important because I mean, you're, you have to know how much your scope is moving or you're not actually applying accurate sight corrections whenever you're dialing like, you know, 35 mils or something crazy like that. So that's one thing that's very different, but most everything else is the same. You know, you need to have low standard deviation and muzzle velocity. You need to have uh, you need to be shooting bullets that are that have consistent shot-to-shot BCs. Um, the principles are all the same. There's just some things that are a little different because it's a big gun, and you're adjusting through more elevation. Um, you know, part of part of the benefit of, of using science the way that we do is, you know, being here in Michigan, we can. There's a couple thousand yard ranges, but we can't shoot past a thousand yards you know, anywhere in the state really. So we've got to, we don't practice much at distance. You know, if we, if we could, we'd be practicing at distance all the time, but by doing all of this work, you know, if we have guns that are shooting small groups at a hundred yards and consistent muzzle velocities, consistent BCs in our scopes track, 
man, we can go anywhere in the country and, and do pretty decent at putting rounds on target because the science extrapolates your trajectory out. And that's something that's been working really well. Now, having said that, it's great to go with good science um, and, you know, know that you'll be able to center your group, but nothing beats the experience of actually shooting those distances where you get to read the unique wind features and, you know, all the other stuff that you have to be a distance to experience. Um, and, and it's possible to go too far. Like some, some extreme range shooters only shoot at long range, you know, like they have, they know their dope for a thousand yards and, and, and beyond, but don't ever really shoot or verify zero at a hundred, you know? So they, it, in that case, it, it's hard to diagnose. Like if you're not hitting targets and it's been three months since you shot at a hundred yards, it's difficult to know why your dope is off. Well, is it because my scope's not tracking is, is my zero off or is my ballistic solution off and you're chasing your tail? You have more variables than equations. So you can never really know what's going on, but that short range work, you can, you can solve all those variables out. And then when you go to long range, there's a much shorter list of potential issues that you're having. Yep. No, to- that's, that's uh, super good advice. And one thing we do to, like with the scopes, cause you're going out to bring up another part where you mentioned you're going to the, like the, the ends of your adjustment is sometimes the scopes, depending how they're zeroed in the rifle setup ha- has a slight curve to the top end. So as you're true to tall target testing out on the edges, it starts to curve to the right usually. And so you'll see a little bit of curve happen in that when you get way up there. So that's something you need to know if in an ELR situation, um, you're, you're, you're pushing that envelope with your optics, um, you know, cause you're, you're kind of crushing it with, you know, aggressive bases and where the Charlie TACCOM helps to kind of keep you in the middle. But with the guys who are going really aggressive, they're, they're, they're squeezing the edges now and they're kind of, you know, they're, they're taking some risks with the, with the, the, the optical package. Yep. Uh, hey, and yeah, Frank, that's... I will say that, uh, I'll say that we, um, you know, at like King of two mile, uh, I think it was, you know, the, uh, 2019, you know, there was a lot, there was a, you know, as this thing has grown or as ELR shooting has grown, people are, you know, getting smarter and, and, you know, better in team dynamics. And there were a number of teams that went, you know, the couple of days preceding the King two mile and either rented or found a buddy's uh, range. And they were shooting out to, you know, two, 3000 yards, like three days before the match. And I was thinking, man, that's a huge advantage. Those guys are going to like kill everybody. And then when one of those teams got to the line, they were like in the pumpkin patch. They were not hitting the target, even the close targets. And nobody on that team ended up finishing very well. Um, and I was thinking to myself, like, what could have gone wrong? But again, if you don't do that work at 100, and just to, just to you know, uh, reinforce Brian's point, you almost can't spend enough time at 100 yards for any of these matches, whether it's PRS or ELR. Um, getting everything right, knowing exactly if you're going straight up and down, confirming zero, checking reticle versus dialing the turret, making sure those two numbers are the same, all that stuff. It's huge. Um, I even do it for the, the shooting that I do most of, which is like traditional NRA long range. I still spend a lot of time at 100 verifying site movements and, and things like that. You, you, it cannot be overstated. No. And ammo, I want to bring up, cause I was going to talk about you kind of spotting, but you kind of bring us into a, a, an even better point. You, I noticed in, in the years, like when you guys were there and you were sort of unbeatable as team AB at King of two mile, you know, there, there would always be teams that, that would work pretty darn hard they would come up and then they would sort of fall apart in my view, fall apart on the line. And you kind of wonder, gee, you know, those guys should have been doing better. I notice with your guys and, and you're that linchpin for that team is the communication. When you're on the line, you guys are really, you know, uh, you excel at communicating with one another and taking what you're seeing in the spotter, Emil, in telling Brian on the gun and translating that back and forth where I feel other teams, you know, I saw guys lost on their dials and, and couldn't remember the correction before, 
Um, you know, ones that just didn't say anything and just shot and it was silence on the line. And it's and it's like, no, I don't really see anything. But then they weren't communicating. So there, there's a there's an element to your style of, you know, working as a team, your communication as a spotter that I think uh, sets you all as team AB apart from the other teams. Well, that was, um, that's experience that was painfully gained, Frank. Um, you know, and that's really a, a byproduct of my experience as a coach in the army. Uh, you know, when you have shooters that are, you know, uh, you know, guys just pulling the trigger or, you know, they're still people, they're not just a platform. You can say that as much as people want to say it, but that's, it's not true. And so that guy's got emotions going, he's got expectations going. So, you know, the number one job of anybody that's in that role of a spotter or a coach or whatever you want to call it is number one job is to maximize the overall team performance period. And so what happens is you see people with different uh, personality types, different approaches. And, you know, just like, you know, a lot of times when guys get together, especially guys that do this sport, I won't say type A because most of us actually aren't type A. Um, but we're all sort of like this combination of like confident introverts when it comes to some of this stuff. So you get in a situation where if guys aren't used to working together with each other if you tell somebody to do something that they sort of have this little seed of disagreement with, then they don't want to freaking do it. And then you get into the arguments on the line or the lack of confidence, which makes guys stop talking and clam up. So you just, you have to, you have to ask the shooter, okay, what do you want to hear, man? You want to hear where you're hitting? Do you want to hear where you're missing? Do you want to hear the correction? You just want to be getting the location of the shot. You know, how can I better help you? And as when that guy knows that you're there just for him and you're not there trying to uh, make it about yourself, and that sounds kind of crazy, but that operation does happen in people's brains. That's when the performance level goes up. And, you know, a plan is better than no plan, right? So don't get paralyzed by disappointment. Don't get paralyzed by momentary uh, failure. You have to keep moving, keep thinking about the thing. So I think a lot of that was just is based on my experience on what works, you know, coaching people over, you know, almost 20 years, all different kinds of personality types, guys that would that would fight somebody at the drop of a hat in a bar versus, you know, somebody that, you know, you would have to like pull out of their shell just to say hi to somebody else at a party. So you have to it's really based on uh, a little bit of psychology but also mainly making sure that that shooter is comfortable and keeping your information in, in shorthand, only talking about the vital stuff, the get rid of the, I think, well, what do you think? Like then you're, you're already done. Once you start asking questions on the line, you're done. You know, I don't know, man, what do you think? Then <laughs> you, you're not going to, I think you're not going to hit another goddamn target. That's what I think. So, uh, I, I think that's 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 the point of it. And we kind of developed that organically. We didn't really have a plan like, hey, we're going to do this and then I'm going to say that and you say this. It was more it just developed organically within that team of how everybody was comfortable talking to everybody else. So every team probably has a different procedure or process. I wouldn't say use that particular process. Um, you know, it might be a good starting point, but as long as it as communication works within a team, then it's working. You know, but the whole goal should be communicating and how can we do this thing quickly and efficiently so the shooter has responsibilities. The shooter's responsibility is to do X, Y, and Z. He knows that, hey, I want to put dope on my gun. I don't want anybody else to touch my gun. I don't want anybody else to tell me my dope. Okay, man, you got it. What's your process for that? Show it to me so I know that we're all good. Okay, you got it locked in. What do you want to do about spin drift or Coriolis or any of that stuff? Um, can you tell me that? Sure. I'll tell you that. Uh, what do you want to do about the wind? You want me to tell you about the wind beforehand or do you want to hold it? Do you want me to give it to you when the target appears? Um, do it this way. Okay. Got that. So you kind of work out all those things beforehand. And then during the match, I'm like, okay, on correction, do you want me to give you the correction in widths of target? Do you want me to give the correction in mills? 
Are you using a scope with wind dots? Do you want me to give you the correction in wind dots? So you iron all that stuff out so that you're telling the stuff to the guy in a way that he expects it. I don't want, I mean, yeah, it, it, there's a lot, there's a lot to it, but that's, I think that, I think you can, you can see my point. Yeah. You're reading the room and then you're fine tuning with the individuals. You're saying, Hey, this guy needs a little bit more. This one needs a little less. This one's working this way, but you're, 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 you're kind of reading the room yourself and then pulling that out of each person without them really knowing you're probably doing it. It's, it's, you know, while you're trying to see what their process is, you're developing your own process to communicate with that person. Yeah, exactly right. Exactly. Yeah, you know, Frank, I think this might be one of the, the, the most important uh, topics that we've discussed on here for anybody listening. It's one of those categories that I think a lot of guys getting into ELR shooting don't put enough thought into or don't realize. It's like an unknown unknown that communication within a team can be so decisive in these events. You know, they, a lot of guys focus on, you know, their scope bases or their bullets or like these other important aspects. But there are other things that are also important that that guys don't know to worry about or they don't know to put time into. But all that stuff that Amo was explaining is absolutely critical. It can make the difference um, in, in the success of a team. Um, you know, I, I remember one of my first uh, experiences as a coach shooter was with Emil in 2008 at the spirit of America match in New Mexico, the same range we shoot King of two miles on. Um, you know, I went out there, I had only been coached a couple other times and it, it was all different. You know, di- everybody had different ways. Well, it, so in that style of shooting, it's typical for the coach to turn the shooter sight knobs, you know, the rear, uh, the rear iron sight, you know, correcting for elevation. And when did the shooter just, he actually can't even see where he's hitting on the target. And that was very foreign to me. Um, and the first time that somebody else reached their greasy fingers in and turned my sight knobs, <laughs> I was like, I was, I, I kind of was uncommon. Like, you're going to reach in my pocket next and count my change. Like what, how, what are you going for? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. But, but the, the approach like that is the, that is the best way to do it. And and having it done in a consistent way so that you know what to expect next time. Um, it, it went really well after that. Um, but that the experience that Emil brings as a coach in all those applications in all those years has really helped our team standardize around. And it's trickled down through. Um, a number of shooters on our team have been on, uh, in one form or another, a U.S. rifle team, be it Palma or F-Class. Um, you know, Mitch has been on those teams. Um, Derek and Paul, when they were on our team, have been on them. I've been on them. So they, you know, those teams have sort of standard ways of saying and doing things and ways of communicating things that if you, if you come into the team with that language as a baseline, we are already 10 steps down the road of working well together. Um, and, and, you know, another get, relating this back to equipment, um, you know, I was talking about the equipment and getting familiar with it. One of the one of the hacks to getting familiar with these large guns that you can't nearly shoot as much is to stick with the same thing for a few years. You know, you might not be able to shoot your 416 a thousand rounds in a season, but by the end of you know two seasons or three seasons, if you stay with the same basic thing, you'll build up that experience and you'll build up that reliability and that comfort level with it. And the same thing goes is true for a team. You know, if you're constantly hopscotching teams and you know going with this team and that team and everybody has different ways of doing it it's going to be hard to develop that uh, familiarity and standards Um, but our team you know we've had members come and go but for the most part the core group has been the same and even though we only get together and shoot a couple times a year um, you know we we have years of doing that so it's it's a you know buildup of experience that kind of results in that synergy. Nice. Now, and, and honestly, that's the thing I look at with you guys. When, when I'm watching the, the King of Two Miles, when I was down there filming, I'm watching your team dynamic more than anything. I'm watching what Amos bring to the table. I'm watching, I mean, I have photographs of your hand with the, your field sketch in your hand. You know, you can't tell who it is, but it's, I know who it is. And I don't post it uh, out on the internet because it's it's like nobody will get it. But to me, when I'm going through those pictures, I'm looking at all the little things that I photographed. And um, that's part of it is just watching your team dynamic, watching how you guys interact with each other. 
in, you know, whenever the conversation came up of, you know, hey, these guys are the winning guys over here. It's like, yeah, because their team works that much better than everyone else. And and that's one of the reasons why you were seeing that dominance is, is it's not, you, you know, you can point to maybe software, you can point to the rifle systems, you can point to your shooters, absolutely, because you, like you said, you have world-class guys on your team. But to me, the dynamic is what set everything apart compared to all the other guys, because there are a lot of good shooters out there with good equipment who invest time and energy into it. But the, the to me, the defining factor was your team dynamic. Yeah, I mean, and you can overthink it too, right? Like, if you go up there with, you know, 17 spotting scopes, and, and, uh, and you know, and you're trying, everybody's got a role and, and you can overthink it. You know, the, the process should be really organic. You know, whatever the group of guys that decides they want to shoot together, and whether it's like shooter spotter or or shooter spotter and another spotter or coach or whatever, they should kind of let that process develop naturally, but know that, okay, these are the things that we have to do. Like we have to, the shooter has to be able to get on the target. The shooter should stay on the rifle to try to see his own impacts if it's possible through the scope um, after firing. The shooter needs to fire and reload and be ready to shoot as fast as possible. Um, the the spotter should be so who's so how is he getting his elevation information? Who's giving him the wind call? When we're spotting it, how are we doing it? You know, so you're answering those questions, and then like if we're not hitting the target, what do we do? Like, if nobody sees anything, what do we do? Like, so have a couple of, like, you know, have one subroutine, like, okay, nobody knows what the fuck is going on, where it is, so what do we do now? So, uh, but as, as you're answering those main questions, how you do that really doesn't matter as long as it's truncated and it's something that doesn't take, you know, you know, more than five or six seconds to say. As long as you're answering those questions, you're going to be a good team. But you have to kind of know, just figure out. It's not it's not rocket science. You have to figure out what the answers you need and then figure out how to get there. Absolutely. No, and I think that's a good kind of ending spot. We're coming up on our hour. Um, uh, we are going to do the part five and, and get that t- finished off. But, um, yeah, I mean, that's a great spot. Uh, hang on one sec. All right, so, yeah, that's on our hour, guys. So um, this has been a great conversation. I think people are going to get a lot of, you know, there's a lot of knowledge bombs in here if you guys are listening. Appreciate uh, Brian and Emil coming on in the burger, no BSBC. Um, th- these these are just uh, been fantastic podcasts and, and you know, have become some of the most downloaded ones we have in our series. So I want to thank you guys. Uh, my pleasure, Frank. Thanks for having us. Yeah, I enjoy the conversation as well. Yep, yep, and stand by for the next part, guys. We'll talk to you soon. We're out of here.